welcome back to Doorway to Discovery. This is Erin. I'm Kylie. And Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> Who are you, Rachel? Why are you here today? Uh, I just walked in off the street on it. Now, my name is Rachel Hill. I am the community engagement specialist that you can find at the Whitby Public Library. I specialize in mostly doing children and family events. So if you're out in the summer anywhere and you see a short little blonde girl, it's probably me. <laughs> She is an adult, just <laughs> putting that in for future reference. Um, you've got a bit of a niche interest lately, mm -hmm. Rachel. What is that niche interest that you're going to talk to us about? My niche interest lately is the history of cookbooks. Ooh, I love this. Very specific. Yeah. <laughs> so if you'll pardon me, I'm going to jump into my spiel. <laughs> so... For this podcast, we decided to research one of the oldest types of books to be published, second only to religious texts and print age. We're investigating the publishing history, popularity, audience, academic information, and eventual future of cookbooks. Yay. Come on. <laughs> Thank you. Cookbooks have a rich history. They were once a symbol of status and wealth, reflecting societal interests, culture, and the economy of their time. They've enjoyed popularity in their publishing, appearing in an abundance of formats and iterations. The intended audience has changed and fluctuated over time, but the analyzing some academic writings today, we're actually going to see that cookbooks influence their political leanings and their cultural impact can all be illustrated through recipes. Finally, in the last decade, cookbooks have faced their first competition, internet recipes. And we're gonna be discussing how we feel the future of cookbooks may there. The food blog. Pinterest. Yes. I also find it buck wild that it's the second most published text just after the Bible. Yeah. And yeah. religious texts. Gutenberg Bible. So it's like first came the Bible, next cookbooks. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, what else would be mass market yeah. for everyone, right? At that time. Cooking. Like at that rate. Yeah, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. Everyone so. wanted to know what everyone else was cooking. <laughs> So, exploring the history of cookbooks is an adventure. They've existed for so long, there's a historical debate on when they were first created. Humans have a strong tradition of oral history, and many recipes were passed down that way before tablet writing was created. One of the first ever recorded recipe books is said to be four clay tablets from 1700 BC in ancient Mesopotamia. These tablets were probably for personal use, created and used by the same individual. But by the 1300s, cookbooks were handwritten, and they were a sign of wealth and nobility. They were only really available for kings and nobles. Wow. In 1390, the book, The Form of Curry, which means rules for cookery, and I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher so many book titles as we go through this, uh, was published for King Richard II, and it was a staple among nobility at the time. With the invention of the printing press, the first printed cookbook was created. The book was Bartholomew Plantina's De Honesta Voluptua et Vettini, which means on right and pleasure and good health. Written in Latin, it appeared in 1474, which is just 19 years after the Gutenberg Bible, <laughs> the first ever mechanically printed book. From this point on, cookbooks became an important staple in any home that could afford them. Okay, but wild that it was on tablets, like yeah realistically i often will mess with ingredients like in recipes can you imagine just like sculpting out that entire recipe and realizing you have to add like extra salt yeah and correcting that <laughs> like, oh, i have to chisel in the denim I figure, I figure at the time they're 
access to spices and foods was very limited. limited. So I don't think there was like a large amount of like, you know what, this would have been better with cumin. (laughs) (laughs) Where you were living, that simply was not. It's going to be like one Cornish head. Yeah. (laughs) Three bucks of wheat. That's it. I don't know what they're making, but yeah. The end. (laughs) And this will keep out witches. So it was very different at the time. So cookbooks are incredible because they reflect not only the cooking trends of the time of publishing, but also the socioeconomic time in which they were written. Cookbooks released during wars and times of revolution have recipes reflecting what can be made with rations and what substitutions for common baking goods, which are no longer accessible. In Nitsa Villapool's cookbook, Coquina al Minuto, she adapted popular recipes to be made with substitutions due to the Cuban Revolution. In similar terms, the Book of Hasty, sorry, the Book of Tasty and Healthy Food, published in the 1930s by the Soviet Union, is a glimpse into food scarcity and Soviet propaganda. Okay, but that's just wild because I feel like I can't speak for you guys, but like I know when I'm on the TikTok. <laughs> there's like there's one creator in particular who gets his hands on like old cookbooks and he does mm-hmm. like a lot of recipes from like the Great Depression. Yes. So I think it's really interesting that like that's being highlighted, especially now that we're in a recession. Yeah. <laughs> but also for like public consumption consumption and like entertainment. It's true. Purposes. Well, it's, it's kind of wild. Really interesting. Like there's Great Era, sorry, Great Depression era cookbooks and World War era cookbooks, which all reflect their time and they give us a peek not only into the history but the day to day lives of people in those. Areas. Yeah. Spoiler alert: a lot of lard. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, like, you know, pandemic cooking, like when there's yeah. all the shortages on stuff too, it's like, where's the pandemic cooking cookbook? Yeah. Right. right? The amount when we couldn't get bread. Remember yeah. Bread was Everyone just thing. started making bread. Bread gate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, like hiking up the prices. It was insane. Yeah. My mom, bless her heart, because I cannot bake for my life. <laughs> my mom would bake bread and then she'd put it in a Ziploc baggie and leave it outside my door. <laughs> And then Which be like, I reminds me when flour disappeared because everyone got into baking, baking. bread. Yeah. Everyone had sourdough starters. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Insane. Absolutely buck wild. I, I can only imagine like in a few decades what the TikTok will look like. Here we go. We're going to do our, you know, 2020 quarantine bread recipe. Right. <laughs> the publishing and profit of cookbooks has always been a reliable endeavor for the publishing industry. Cookbooks are a collection of recipes that have been triple tested and edited. They've been passed through recipe testers and compiled for convenience. If a recipe is in a book, prospective buyers can count on the fact that it has been thoroughly tested and should be a crowd pleaser. In 1961, the New York Times reported that publishers could not keep up with the constant demand for cookbooks. Julia Childs, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and Irma Rombauer's Joy of Cooking sold 600,000 and 18 million copies each by the end of the 60s. The appetite for cookbooks has continued to grow since then. In 2017, around 17.8 million cookbooks were sold in the U.S. alone. According to NPD BookScan, which tracks about 85% of all book sales in America, in 2020, cookbook sales jumped 17% from 2019, with general cookbooks selling best, well-known authors with big personalities that use multiple platforms for promotion being the most successful, Mm -hmm. and of course, books with eye-catching, colorful, and full-page pictures to sell more. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that makes sense. I never understand cookbooks that have, like, a couple pictures. No. Like, none. It's like, why? And then it's page after page of just a wall of text. Text. And I'm, as someone who's not a competent 
uh, cooker, I would prefer to see a visual. Mine won't necessarily look like that. No, I know. I was like, still, I need to see the picture. You know you're on the it's right an inspiration path. to compare to when my meal is done, so I can feel bad that it doesn't look the same, right? <laughs> or at least it's like, wow, mine's a completely different color. I should be concerned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or also just like you see a photo and you're like, wow, that looks good. I should make that. Yeah. It's like true. Simple it's brain. eye catching. Mm-hmm. That's why I like some photos in my menus too. Yeah. <laughs> I am true. but a simple human. Well, especially if you're traveling abroad, having yes. a photo on a menu when you don't speak the language is extremely helpful. Yeah. So many people found cookbooks historical reflection of the current economy or social, socio-political atmosphere to be intriguing, myself included. Author Keenan Ferguson, in their book, Cookbook Politics, asserts that the idea of a cookbook can be broken down into political texts, that the type of cooking a person prefers will directly inform their political stance and ideologies. And this is wild. Yeah, (laughs) which is crazy, because I'm like, are you looking at what I'm cooking and then being like, oh, this is where I feel you fall in, like, the grand scheme of things. Uh, And tell him, I'm going to butcher this, I'm sorry. And Liam... Brilliant Severin famously wrote, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are in reference to the fact that you can gain a great deal of understanding from a person based just on their diet. Hmm. Some cookbooks are obvious in this endeavor. They're published by political parties or religious groups and reflect the group's interests and values. Popular cookbooks to have been released are from, as we mentioned, the Soviet Union, the Catholic Church, and even the United Nations, whose cookbook, The World's Favorite Recipes, was so popular it garnered a follow-up, Favorite Recipes from the United Nations. You have to consider what makes up taste. What influences a person's palate? Is it not the same as what influences a person's political philosophy? Hmm. Uh, Ferguson makes the point that cookbooks are, if anything, an archive. And archives are a direct reflection of what people consider to be important. I mean, there's culturally specific foods, Mm -hmm. which you don't often find outside in other cultures. But then it's just you look at like a general food like bread. Well, how is bread made in North America? How Versus, is it made in the yeah, Mediterranean? Yeah. How is it made in Asia? All the different iterations of it, which is mm-hmm. roughly the same food. So what does it say about... And why is it made that way? Yeah. What does it say about my political ideations? I really like chicken nuggets. <laughs> I can't say <laughs> I'm not positive. It's interesting, too, again, back on bread, because it's, well, it's mostly in loaf form in yeah. grocery stores around mm-hmm. here in Canada, but it's more of, like, a flatter, flat bread in a lot of countries where it's more common to rip it off and use it more yes. for dipping and picking up those mm-hmm. other foods, while we tend to use it to wrap around other foods and ingredients. Yeah. Wild. Food. Food. <laughs> Cookbooks, politics, who knew? Ferguson isn't the only academic to write on this. Roxanne Hard and Janet Weisless in their book Consumption and the Literary Cookbook also make a strong argument for the connection between cookbooks being representation of a culture and historical narrative in which they are created. Hard and Weisless analyze popular cookbooks and reflect on the cookbooks that are trying what they're trying to portray and promote. Discussing the link between storytelling and collective memories, say in Mexican and indigenous cookbooks, and the importance to their communities, or looking at Asian American fusion cuisine and how it illustrates an immigrant story coming to America and the combination of culture. These reflections on cookbooks' perspectives show unique cultural lens that each views its recipe through and how it reflects on the authors and their backgrounds. Okay, so those little write-ups are great, but like, can we just talk about the novel that is written on a food blog before you actually get to the recipe? Yes, we're going <laughs> to mention that more. 
for this is more them looking to being like looking in the actual recipe itself right. what that's a reflection of rather than the food bloggers biography that they like to write <laughs> Wait, literally things. like i read a joke somewhere that was like somebody could be like dexter essentially could be a cook or a chef and writing like all of his you know admissions to murder in all of those food blogs yeah and no one would ever read it because you just skip to the rest yeah, of the zodiac killer could quite <laughs> literally like, have a food blog have, yeah, a, food have blog. a food blog and admit to all their crimes and how they did it and it would be in eight paragraphs before a fed, like fettuccine alfredo recipe and i would simply not read it no, no no one would the only person who's reading that is the same person who reads the terms and conditions before they accept anything and i don't know those people <laughs> nor am i that person so the future of cookbooks is unpredictable they're clearly still popular as we've seen uh, but the way generations consume recipes is rapidly changing, which is creating a critical issue. The publishing of cookbooks has been steady historically, with books being released regularly since the invention of the printing press. However, in only the last 10 years, there's been a big change and the culture of the cookbook is declining. All print books have faced some decline in popularity due to ebook sales, but ebooks have not taken over the book market and most likely never will. The real change in cookbooks has been that technology and demographics interests. Yes. For instance, 46% of women age 55 and older find that cookbooks are losing their appeal. This is normal. By this age, most people have established a family favorite recipes and they're less likely to experiment. But in the past, the next generation would fill that gap. But millennials prefer to find recipes online. 59% of millennials use their mobile device while cooking. And instead of being restricted to one book's recipes, they have access to the entire internet for specific meals. Yeah. We've all been there Googling a substitute for this or how can I make a sauce without this ingredient? Yeah. That's not included in most cookbooks, but you can find it quickly online. Yeah. Well, that is just easier, honestly. Yeah. It is, really. Internet recipes have many benefits, the most alluring being that they're free and mm -hmm. they take no physical space. Cookbooks are often expensive, large, and space-consuming books. And in the current environment, with soaring inflation and pricing and the novelty of cookbooks, just might not be uh, as engaging as they used to be. They might become a luxury as they were in the past. When you weigh the costs associated with cookbooks compared to the internet recipes, you can understand why younger generations are choosing to go online. Internet recipes offer zero cost beyond an internet connection, and they're much more convenient, being instantaneous archives. In internet recipes are the only real competition that print cookbooks have ever had, and they're a fierce competitor. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like, I can't speak for other countries, but I know Canada and their, like, our cost of books is much more than it is in the U.S. Yes. And, like, a big cookbook will cost you, like, at least $50. Mm -hmm. It's true. Big, full-color, like, the almost coffee table yeah. cookbooks Which are is extremely expensive. And a lot of them are like that, especially the ones, like you were saying, that are written by, like, popular personalities. Like, mm -hmm. Chrissy Teigen was a model, and that's fine, but, like, she's also got, like, three cookbooks. Yeah, and I have like a really old, it's like a home sense or it's something, but it's it's a cookbook from like the 70s. Yeah. And it's essentially just a binder. It's just yeah. a binder full of pages. There's not really a lot of glitz of glam. There's no, there's photos, but they're really drawings. Yeah. It's all in black and white. And it's, we still always had it in our family home because there were still good recipes in it. Yeah. I mean, like, I know you mentioned like, mo like most cookbooks will go through like methods and like testing and all of that kind of stuff before they're published. But like, I think for my age group too, like that was something I just learned. 
Like I did not realize like that much testing went into yeah. printing something like that. Right. So in my frame of mind, I'm like, why am I going to pay 50, 60 bucks for a book that I may not even use or mm. like one or two recipes? Like it's not worth it. It's very true. Where cookbooks still thrive is the reliability of their recipes. The public trusts cookbook recipes more than internet recipes. Yeah. The number of recipes online can be overwhelming and a book sorts and filters and offers less choice, but promises a good experience. Internet ratings for recipes also, as we know, have low validity and often suggest <laughs> amenities to the recipe that aren't guaranteed to be successful. True. Internet recipes are often presented within the food blog format, meaning yeah. the page is full of irrelevant stories and advertisements obscuring the actual recipe. Internet recipes have a convenience being directly on the phone, yeah. but the addition of the blogging and the advertisements take away from that convenience. The argument could be made that borrowing a cookbook from print or e-back or e-book, sorry, from your local library, which you can do at the Whippy Public Library, <laughs> reduces the cost and increases convenience. In the end, it'll be up to the individual person to decide which format they prefer. And a person's age and experience will probably factor into that. Do you guys use cookbooks? I was going to say my favorite thing to do with cookbooks, borrow them from the library, look through. If I actually like really love it and there's a lot of recipes that I'd use, mm -hmm. maybe I'll buy it. But if there's not, you know. I just copy one down. Yeah. And write it out. I think it also depends on like, as silly as it sounds, I know they were saying like political affiliations and stuff like that, but like how you were raised too. Like my mom is an amazing cook. Mm. So like I learned to cook from just like watching her. So I find a lot of the things that I'll make, some of them turn out, some of them don't, but I don't use a recipe for. Yeah. It's true. See my um, family, my grandma, I'm trying to learn some recipes from her, but it's, impossible <laughs> because everything she does is a pinch of this yes. a oh. handful of this i'm like yeah. how much sugar is it a cup is it a cup and a half and she's like this much and just dumps in a <laughs> random not on the exact line yeah. amount of sugar a pinch of this feel with this and she doesn't know yeah and i ask her how much is this a teaspoon a tablespoon yeah she genuinely doesn't know. Yeah, my mom doesn't know She's been tossing either. it in this bowl yeah. for like 50 years. And yep. she's like, this is just what you do. And I'm you like, please, it. please help me. <laughs> well, it kills me because like for my mom, she's always just like, taste it as you go. And if it doesn't taste quite right, like this is how you balance this and this is how you balance that. And so. But if you're not a chef, if yes. you don't cook regularly, you don't know how to taste no. when it's mm -hmm. off. Or you can be like, this tastes bad, but I don't know what to add to, right? to fix it. Exactly. Like, I really don't think it's common knowledge to add sugar to tomato sauce or tomato soup to cut the acidity. No. Huh. Like, yeah. I My brain was like, I do what? And you're like, oh, yeah. No. Great. So you know how sometimes you make tomato soup and it just tastes like jarred, jarred sauce? Mm. Sugar, Kylie. Sugar. Yeah, or I used know. to always make uh, like a white sauce with heavy cream. Yeah. And but heavy cream goes bad really easily if yeah. you're not constantly making the sauce. Like it's it's not the best thing to buy. And then I found out, oh, you just use milk yeah. and like flour and you make a roux. And you make a roux. And, and it's, the, it's the same thing. It tastes mm -hmm. so similar. Plus you can put like spices in your roux. Oh, yeah. Well, I measure garlic with my heart. That's yeah. the only yeah, thing I do measure without knowledge. I'm and glad I just we're all in agreement. The, put measure. Measure. the whole head of garlic is... Right. Oh, the when they're thing. like, oh, three little pits of Double. garlic. And like, I'm like, six three? Whole head. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. This is about commitment. Double. Yeah. Well, well I think it's crazy because, like, again, you know, I don't really use cookbooks. I have a few for like aesthetic purposes, but like what I do use is my, so my grandmother, um, many, many years ago was part of the church 
and the church like published their own like little cookbook which is like spiral browned and like, yeah. whatever that I will use because do you know who makes the best tr- like butter tarts church ladies <laughs> well and it's also we all make this but we know yours is the best yes Put your yeah. recipe in this it's everyone's best recipe, recipe tried and true and local so probably very similar taste that everyone's interested well, in. and it makes me feel it feels at home like when you're eating those that's recipes. true it's like those are the, the cookbooks that i'll use but i really won't other than that if i need a quick recipe for something i just go on pinterest or i google it mm-hmm. see i go on pinterest yeah and i have a board where i keep the things that i use Same. what's your food board called it's called rachel can't cook <laughs> Mine is called Om Nom Nom. <laughs> I'm so boring. Mine's just all the food. Oh, Kylie. <laughs> well, it's funny because on what you were saying that it tastes like home, yeah. I want to try and collect these recipes yeah. from my family because I'm worried if I don't have them and family passes away, I'll never be able to taste it again. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a weird concern. So popping it's back, not out, weird. I don't know, it's, but it's, it's like I'm really worried I'm never going to be able to taste that pie again. And it reminds you of not just obviously you like the taste of the food but the person but it's comfort so yeah. it's, if you have these recipes you're not completely losing someone yeah you i have those pieces left behind so i think there's something to be said for like older cookbooks like in yeah. that regard especially like our grandparents or whatever if they were using like the joy of cooking if you still have access to that and like that's their tried and true recipe like you can duplicate that and you can still yeah. have that feeling yeah i get mm-hmm. that so cookbooks um, is a creation that holds a great deal of history and importance for humanity. Looking through history, we can see how early cookbooks were utilized and their place as a status symbol. As time progresses and cookbooks become more accessible, we see how they illustrate the culture of those around them. Reflecting on our times of wealth and war, the popularity and audience of cookbooks has always shifted, but remains strong to this day. Looking at academic research seen on cookbooks, we can identify that there's more to them than just a collection of recipes and how they reflect both individual politics and people. Finally, we see that there's a critical change happening in our world and cookbooks currently, and they may have to evolve and adapt to remain as accessible in the future. Mm. Yep. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> right? <laughs> so much food talk. <laughs> All right. So we have some new books that are coming in May that we wanted to talk to you about. Kylie, do you want to talk about uh, the first one we've got on the list? Sure. I am so excited for this one. Um, it's called Warrior Girl on Earth by Angeline Booley. Um, so this one, Perry Firekeeper Birch was ready for her summer of slack. But instead, after a fender bender that was entirely not her fault, she's stuck working to pay back her Auntie Donis for repairs to the Jeep. Thankfully, she has the other outcasts of the summer program, Team Misfit Toys, and even her own twin sister, Pauline. Together, they ace the obstacle courses, plan vigils for missing women in the community, and make sure the summer doesn't feel so lost after all. But when she attends a meeting at a local university, Perry learns about the warrior girl, an ancestor whose bones and knife are stored in the museum archives and everything changes. Perry has to return Warrior Girl to her tribe. Determined to help, she learns all she can about the federal law that allows tribes to request the return of ancestral remains and sacred items. The university has been using legal loopholes to hold on to Warrior Girl and 12 other Anishinaabe ancestors' remains, and Perry and the Misfits won't let it go on any longer. Using all of their skills and resources, the misfits realize that a heist is the only way to bring back the stolen archive, artifacts, and remains for good. But there is more to this repatriation than meets the eye as more women disappear and Pauline's perfectionism takes a turn for the worse. As secrets and mysteries unfurl, 
Perry and the Misfits must find a way to make things right for the ancestors and for their community. That sounds so good. I'm so excited for this. And my hold actually for it just came in this morning and I'm like, ah, <laughs> excellent. I love a heist. <laughs> yes. And also this entire thing just makes me think of the British Museum. Yeah. <laughs> and how they've so. basically stolen everything from everyone. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was just talking to our archivist, uh, Sarah, because it's National Indigenous Peoples Day is coming up and it's going to be outside in the square in front of the library. So we're mm -hmm. going to have a booth there just promoting all of our Indigenous content. And I was like, oh, is there anything extra from archives that we would have? Mm -hmm. And she said, no. She's like, we do not keep that content. It always yeah. goes to the local indigenous people. Bless mm -hmm. Sarah. They don't have it. Good. But that's supposed to be the rule for everyone. Yeah. Anyway. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you listen, we did a podcast a couple months ago and we talked about colonialism. So we don't need to <laughs> talk about it again. Well, let's move on to our next read back. Yeah. Which is called Summer Reading by Jen McKinley. For Samantha, a summer on Martha's Vineyard with her family's tiny cottage was supposed to be about resurrecting her career as a chef until she's tasked with chaperoning her half-brother, Tyler. The teenage brainiac is spending his summer at a local library in a robotics competition, and there's no place Sam, who's dyslexic, likes less than a library. And because Universe hates her, the library's interim director turns out to be a hot reader guy whose book she accidentally destroyed on the ferry ride <laughs> over to the island. Ben is on a quest to find his father, whose identity he's never known. He's taken the temporary job on the island to research the summer his mother spent there when she got pregnant with him. Ben tells himself that he's interested, that he isn't interested, sorry, in a relationship right now. Yet as soon as Sam knocks his book into the ocean, he can't stop thinking about her. An irresistible attraction blossoms and Ben inspires Sam to create the cookbook she's always dreamed about. And jumps on, she jumps on helping him find his father. As soon as they realize their summer fling may heat up and become a happily ever after. Oh, cookbooks. cookbooks and libraries. And libraries. libraries. Hooray. It has everything. This book has everything. Although what kills me is the robotics competition. I was like, who's funding that? Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> the most unbelievable thing to me is it's this. The robotics is the library can fund a robotics competition. <laughs> That's definitely an outside source. They, yeah, I would love if we could. They just booked this thing. Yeah. yeah. So the third book that we're really excited for coming out in May is called The Ferryman by Justin Cronin. Founded by the mysterious genius known as the designer, the archipelago of Prospera lies hidden from the horrors of deteriorating outside world. In this island paradise, Prospera's lucky citizens enjoy long, fulfilling lives until the monitors embedded in their forearms, meant to measure their physical health and psychological well-being, fall below 10%. Ooh. <laughs> then they retire themselves, embarking on a ferry ride to the island known as the nursery, where their failing bodies are renewed, their memories are wiped clean, and they are, re are sorry, and they are ready to restart life afresh. Proctor Bennett of the Department of Social Contracts has a satisfying career as a ferryman, gently shepherding people through the retirement process and, when necessary, enforcing it. But all is not well with Proctor. For one thing, he's been dreaming, which is supposed to be impossible in Prospera. For another, his monitor percentage has begun to drop alarmingly fast. And then comes the day he's summoned to retire his own father, who gives him a disturbing and cryptic message before being wrestled onto the ferry. Meanwhile, something else is stirring. The support staff working on Prospera have begun to question their place in the social order. Unrest is building, and there are rumors spreading of a resistance group known as Arrivalists, who may be fermenting a revolution. Soon Proctor finds himself questioning everything he once believed, entangled with a much bigger cause than he realized, and on a desperate mission to uncover the truth. That's so spooky. Interesting. Do you know what it reminds me of? 
that movie with Ewan McGregor? The Island. Johansson? The, the Island. Island. Yes, very much so. Yeah, where like, so that movie is, we'll put it in our Biblio list for you all, but um, they're, they're clones, right? They're clones. They live in what they think is essentially a paradise, if yes. I remember, and then eventually get clones. So like Ascend, they get called up. Yes. But oh, they win the lottery. Yes. They win the lottery. And it's, that's essentially like when the movie star who was paid for her clone, a.k.a. Scarlett Johansson, needs like a new kidney or something. The clone... That is the big twist, though. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the movie's like 15 years that old. That is true. Okay? I think it's even older than that. Oh, amazing. The, uh, you know, the clone yeah. gets to win the lottery where essentially they're like harvested yeah. for their organs. and It also such. reminds me of a video, uh, a video game called Spirit Fair. Where you play as a ferryman, bringing spirits ah. across to the great beyond, but the spirits can't leave until they have some things wrapped up in the real world. So you help them with those issues or yeah. what's going on, and then you can ferry them across. It's a very Ooh. emotional video game. I like yeah. The Sims. Is it like The Sims? It is not like The Sims. <laughs> okay, so maybe it's not for me. It's like, would you like nothing like The Sims, but more crying? Spirit no. fairy. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me I don't get to do You will not like it, no. Sugar, okay. Um, so we've got some hidden gems that we wanted to talk to you about. And I know Kylie is itching to tell you about this first one. I do. I do love this one. Um, the first one we have up, I also themed them all food related. Woo! So yay food and cookbooks. Um, this first one is called Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. Also fun fact, this is like a TikTok sensation it book. It did blow up. Yeah. Self-published and then got published. So yay. I love that. Um, <laughs> Um, so after a lifetime of bounties and bloodshed, Viv is hanging up her sword for the last time. The battle-weary orc claimed, aims to start fresh, opening her first ever coffee shop in the city of Thune. But old and new rivals stand in the way of success, not to mention the fact that no one has any idea what coffee actually is. <laughs> if Viv wants to put the blade behind her and make her plans a reality, she won't be able to go it alone. But the true rewards of the uncharted path are the travelers you meet along the way. And whether they're drawn together by ancient magic, flaky pastry, or a freshly brewed cup of coffee, they may become partners, family, and something deeper than she could have ever dreamed. I've heard such good things about this. It's book. so cute. It's the tagline is like high fantasy, low stakes. And it's <laughs> it's true. The stakes are very low. And I love that because, you know, it didn't cause me significant amounts of stress or angst. So not yay. as high fantasy needs to be an epic battle yeah. running across. This one know. was just, you know, some fun fantasy people and they were like, I had this coffee stuff. I think it was like the elves made it. Oh. And then all these people are like, what? This there's this delicious smell in the in the streets. What is this? And they're like, it's coffee. That's so cute. It's the really great. It. Yeah. It's always the elves. <laughs> What do we have next, Rachel? We have Kitchen Front by Jennifer Ryan. Is it the same Jennifer Ryan who writes all the cowboy romances we have? I don't know. I'm gonna... I'm gonna guess no. I'm gonna guess no. So (laughs) Rachel was reading this fantastic book called The Cowboy Secret Baby. Yeah, something like that. I really enjoy Jennifer Ryan, actually. I'm currently reading Stone Cold Cowboy, uh-huh. which is a classic of hers. But, you know, anyway, let's get into this. <laughs> the other Jennifer the Ryan. The Kitchen Front by the other Jennifer Ryan. <laughs> Two years into World War II, Britain is feeling her losses. The Nazis have won the battles. The Blitz has destroyed cities and U-Books have cut off the supply of food. In an effort to help housewives with food rations, the BBC radio program called Kitchen Front is holding a cooking contest and the grand prize is a job as the program's first ever female co-host 
For four different women, winning the competition will present a crucial chance to change their lives. For a young widow, it's a chance to pay off her husband's debts and keep a roof over her children's heads. For a kitchen maid, it's a chance to leave servitude and find freedom. For the lady of the manor, it's a chance to escape her wealthy husband's increasingly hostile behavior. And for a trained chef, it's a chance to challenge the men at the top of her profession. These four women are giving the competition their all, even if that sometimes means bending the rules. But with so much at stake, will the contest that aims to bring the community together only serve to break it apart? So you're telling me this author didn't write Stone Cold Cowboy? Maybe. <laughs> They're very different things. They're not... very different <laughs> World War II historical action. This reminds me, of, uh, my grandparents are from London, and they lived there during the war. And my grandpa was working at a grocery store at one point, And, of course, they couldn't get any food in, yeah. and everyone was starving. And they would weigh everything. And when they were weighing stuff like grapes, they would have to minus the weight that they would have to calculate the stems were taking up. Oh, wow. So they would only pay for the grapes. And he said, you'd be eating an apple if you could get an apple. And people would hang around you and offer you like a pence for the core so they could eat the core just to get some kind of fruit or something. Yeah, nobody wants scurvy. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that, listeners, is how you get scurvy. By not eating you enough need fruit. citrus. Oh, I think yeah. it's citrus specifically. That's why it's the oranges in well, Outlander. Well, that's why they called the British limey, uh, because they'd have to suck on limes to not get scurvy. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone reads Outlander and... Oranges. Yeah, oranges. <laughs> yeah. What's her name? Claire. Claire's like, eat the oranges. And Jamie's like, I don't know what that means, but sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, so bless his little orange heart. Okay. The last book that we have that we think you should read is called Arsenic and Adobo by Mia P. Manasala. So when Lila moves back to home to recover from a horrible breakup, her life seems to be following the all-typical rom-com tropes. She's tasked with saving her Tita Rosie's failing restaurant, and she has to deal with a group of matchmaking aunties who shower her with love and judgment. But when a notoriously nasty food critic, who happens to be her ex-boyfriend, drops dead moments after the confrontation with Lila, her life quickly swerves from a Nora Ephron rom to an Agatha Christie case. With the cops treating her like she's the one and only suspect and a shady landlord looking to finally kick the Mascapal family out and resell the storefront, Lila's left with no choice but to conduct her own investigation. Armed with the nosy auntie network, her barista best bud, and her trusted dachshund, Longanisa, Lila takes on this tasty, twisted case and soon finds her own neck on the chopping block, which kills me. I love the trope of the girls. Like, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, so obviously I can solve this mystery. Right. That's like the um, the Alexis Hall um, murder yes. most actual. Yeah, she's like literally a true crime podcaster, and there's a murder. She's like, don't worry, guys, I got this. Yeah, there yeah. was. Well, they call them internet sleuths, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And my and toxic desktop detective. Desktop. Ah. My toxic trait is I feel like I could solve because I've watched so much CSI. <laughs> Same, slightly <laughs> different. Feel like I could get away with. It. <laughs> Also true. Um, so what about we're listening to? We know, or reading, I should say, Rachel, you're reading. I'm still reading, yeah, Stone Cold Cowboy, which is a Jennifer Ryan. And Jennifer Ryan writes like purely cowboy romance. So if you're looking for a very light, fun romance with a Southern twang twist, <laughs> Jennifer Ryan, pretty much anything of hers. I love Excellent. that. What about you guys? What have you been into? Um, I have been read well i just finished um reading a broken blade by melissa blair um that one it's like fantasy um it follows kira who's an assassin she's like the king's assassin um and Ooh. she's told to go find this like rebel leader um turns out the rebels have some good ideas um and the king's like not great so 
Um, I'm eagerly awaiting the second book that comes out it, like next week, I think. Very Throne of Glass. It's very Throne of Glass. It's it's really good. I do love an assassin. I do love just kind-hearted rebels. It was great. Well, right? And I'm like, huh, I like this. It's um, very fun. There's like a fae realm. It's very cool. I'm sold. Um, I also just started reading, funny enough, Angeline Bully's first book yeah. in preparation for the second book, Firekeeper's Daughter. Um, so this one, there's like a mystery aspect. We're trying to find um like uh the firekeeper's daughter no (laughs) the firekeeper's daughter is trying to find like a drug dealer who's like it's very like dangerous drug Mm -hmm. new drug so she's like an fbi like informant okay so very crescent city oh my gosh yeah (laughs) yeah anywho I like tropes. We do. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really good so far. I'm like maybe a quarter of the way in. I've heard fantastic things about it. It's, it's stressing me out and also very sad. Oh. I was like, oh no. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic. So that's what I'm reading. Amazing. What are you reading? I am taking a page out of Rachel's book. Ah. And I didn't intentionally walk into this novel thinking it was a cowboy novel, <laughs> but it was. And I love it because it's a... Um, well, I just finished it, actually, and now I'm on book three of the series. <laughs> but the first one is called Indigo Ridge by Devney Perry. Ah. Yes, you were telling me about this one. It's so good. So essentially, it follows, like, six different siblings that all live in this small town. And are it there starts six with... books? The fifth one hasn't been released yet, so I'm still waiting. Um, so every sibling gets their book. We start with the oldest sibling. His name is Griffin. Um, he owns, like, the ranch in town, and he's a cowboy. Um, and this new girl moves to town, and she is the uh, chief of police. Ah. So the first book is, like, um, like a mystery thriller. So, yeah. there, it, like, it is mystery-motivated, um, and it definitely has some great action scenes, which I really loved. And then the second book was so good. The second one is called... Juniper Hill. Juniper Hill. And it's like the second oldest brother. And I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil anything. But this girl comes. <laughs> to, anyway, they're wonderful. I'm on the third one. It's a sister who's a doctor. And so I'm very much enjoying the series so far. And they're all cowboys. And they're in Montana sure. on branches. And um, I'm ignoring, you know, some of the red flags. You got three cowboys. <laughs> in, with... in, all, in all cowboy romance, <laughs> they're always feminist cowboys. And I choose to believe that that's simply what all cowboys are. Yes. I'm known for peer pressuring and bullying my coworkers into reading cowboy, cowboy romances. romances. Yes. She is known for that. I am known for bullying my coworkers into reading mafia yeah. romances. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know what we that know says what about. about me, but I know who I am. And I'm secure in that knowledge. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, just a few extra things. So as always, please feel free to email us reviews with your favorite books to share. We can up uh, sorry, we can share it in an upcoming episode. Um, you can send us via email. So the link will be um, on our notes when you listen to this. Uh, just a reminder, we have a really amazing 2S LGBTQ plus online book club uh, in partnership with other libraries in Durham region. So that's something we're really proud of. We also have adult um, book clubs at all of our locations. So take a quick look at our website to find which one's best for you. Um, we have some author visits. So we do have a really Really cool author. She, uh, her name is Farzana Doctor. She's coming in June, I believe, the seventeenth. Um, so she's written some great books about poetry. Um, so we're really looking forward to having her. Um, 
and uh, drag queen story time. Drag queen story time will be on the tenth. We are very much looking forward to the fabulous atmospheres. Yep. She will be um, doing our story time. She did it last year, and she's incredible. So that'll be on the tenth of June. So we are giving you lots of ample knowledge. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we will see you all there. Yeah, and June seventeenth is going to be real busy for yeah, us. Yes. So yeah. we've got the so author visit, author and we also visits. have. It is Indigenous Peoples Day, which is going to be held right out in the square. Yep. And you can also find the library um, at the municipal building on Roslyn celebrating Durham Youth Pride. Love it. It's a busy Saturday it's for a busy us. Day. Yeah. Love wow. it all. So if you come to the library, there'll be like one person staffing the desk. <laughs> <laughs> we are all at events. Are Lots going on in June. <laughs> Thank you all for listening as usual. Um, and we will see you all next month. Bye. 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 Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs>